This is the LarryInFishers.com podcast. My name is Larry Lannon. I'm honored to have uh, Sonoli Dev as uh, my guest today, a very prolific author, including the book we'll be talking about today and she will be talking about here in Fishers. It's called Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors. So Sonoli Dev, thank you so much uh, for agreeing to, to be on the podcast today. Hi, everyone. Hi, Larry. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. And we'll get into that in just a moment. I want to just uh, remind people that Sonoli Dev will be in Fishers Saturday, September 30th, 2023, from 2.30 until 4.30 in the afternoon at the Forum Event Center here in Fishers. And uh, she'll be there with two other authors uh, and uh, and talking about uh, books uh, of their own. And we're uh, as I said, uh, Sonoli is a very prolific author. We're going to uh, zero in on one particular book that she'll be here in Fishers to talk about. But uh, Sonoli, your background as an American woman, heritage is from the nation of India. You're very front and center about that, of course, in the book Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors. Uh, you've taken basically Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. It's not a retelling of that book. You're putting your own spin on, on that idea. So tell us uh, why that Jane Austen novel impacted you? So I read, um, I read Pride and Prejudice in middle school. And I actually, um, and it had such an impact on me. I actually blame Jane Austen uh, for the woman I have become. In fact, um, if I'm ever having a, a, you know, fight with my husband, I will be, I'll say, take it up with Jane, you know, to that extent, I feel like her books impacted me. And here's why. And and also the ironic thing is my introduction to her came through a retelling. Because there was, this is, I think about, uh, we're talking about 1983 um, or 86, thereabouts. And there was an Indian TV show uh, that was translated from Pride and Prejudice. And uh, this was back in the days of, you know, when we had a couple hours of TV uh, in India. This is in <clears throat> Mumbai, then Bombay, India. And we had a couple hours of TV a week. So this was a big deal when there was a new show. And um, the thing that struck me was, and I was, as I said, you know, maybe 10, 12. And I was struck by the fact that here was a girl, uh, a woman who had opinions who didn't pander to the aunties, um, who didn't care about being liked. And um, and she ended up being liked for, respected for, and loved for it. And something deep inside me that I believed about myself, which was getting, um, you know, which was not getting no reinforcement from the world around me, or very little reinforcement, um, just sang. And I ran out and I picked up the book and I read through, um, you know, read through, most of uh, Jane Austen's work. I do have four favorite novels. And uh, when I was very young, I translated them into my own world um, over and over again. Like this was my daydream as a child. And then once I took up writing um, professionally, I knew that by that time, um, she had been retold in terms of culture and translation over and over again, and really beautifully. And that's not what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was pay homage to the lessons I learned from her books um, that made me who I am today. And so I had this dream of um, taking my four favorite Jane Austen novels and um, writing them as four novels under one story umbrella. And 
Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors kicks that off. It's the first in that series of four novels. And this is the book uh, we'll be talking about today, Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors. You have a new book we'll talk about uh, as we get uh, further along here. But let's talk about Pride, Prejudice, uh, and Other Flavors. Uh, the main character is Trisha, I would say. Now, Trisha is a renowned surgeon in San Francisco, yet within her own family, she calls herself the black sheep of the family. So talk about uh, Trisha and, and how you created her persona. All right, can you still hear me? Because my volume just went down to zero. Okay, okay can, you, can, can, you hear, can you hear me all right? I'm I'm good. So sorry for that. Did you hear the question um, I asked? Um, the last part. Could you repeat? The sure, I'd be glad because... to. Because uh, uh, one main main character, main character in Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors would certainly be Trisha, and uh, yes. Trisha is a renowned surgeon in San Francisco. Yet she still feels like she's the black sheep of the family. So talk about Trisha and how you created her persona. So remember how I, I, I was saying um, that Austin was such a huge influence personally for me. And one of the reasons for that was uh, when I was growing up in, um, you know, when I was growing up in India, studying in English, thanks to colonization, a lot of, you know, everything we were reading uh, was Western literature because um, I was reading in English and between that, between the classics and uh, local, you know, films, all of that, there was no, um, there was almost no examples of women who wanted things, uh, women who desired things and got them at the end of the story. All the stories I was reading were either centered around men or when a woman had any kind of starring role, there was misery at the end. So the only person who, um, you know, where I didn't find that was Austin novels, where her um, heroines had enough self-worth to want things, uh, to believe they're worthy of them, and actually got them through the story, right? And they grew, and people around them grew. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't um, that they didn't, but but they demanded things and they desired things and they got them, which was, I think, why I glommed onto her so very strongly because there was so little of that happening. Having said that, in I wrote this book in 2017. And in 2017, if you had, or even today, if you ask anyone who is a fan of, um, you know, of, of romantic stories, who the definitive uh, romantic hero is, you know, more than half that room is going to say Mr. Darcy. And on the page, when you read that book, we start with Mas, uh, Mr. Darcy being a jerk, you know, and that is actually the whole story. Here is a girl or a woman who has a choice between destitution and marriage and, you know, one of the richest men in England and therefore one of the richest men in the world uh, offers for her. But everything she has seen in his behavior tells her that he is um, not a nice person. Uh, and she believes that she has enough self-worth to deserve more. So here's a woman who has to choose between destitution and marriage and chooses not to um, marry a man who um, she, she believes is not worthy of her. 
So that's true self-worth. I think women even today are working toward that self-worth. We all are, but the fem- the female journey um, more so is about self-worth because of what the world has taught us from the day we die, you know, the day we're born about ourselves. So coming back to that, so coming back to that, um, I, in 2017, and, and, and when, when we write, even now, one of the first things we hear about female protagonists is, a, is commentary on likability. And certainly this was happening in 2017. And I was really curious to know if I could, in 2017, write a female character who had that much privilege, because uh, Darcy is also a study in the privilege of his time. He is very much at the top of the ladder in, in all ways, um, you know, in, in the social ladder. And um, and he never apologizes for it. All he doesn't have is the lens of empathy, right? So that's what he learns through it. So he is arrogant. He owns his privilege very much. And um, his intention is good, but he has no empathy. And that's his journey. And I wanted to see if I could write a woman like that who had every privilege of her time. She comes from generational wealth. This is a story of a family that is uh, that, that is descended from royalty in India, has migrated to San Francisco, seen great success, and their oldest son is running for California governor. So they are seeking political power. So they are they have you know every kind of privilege. Trisha personally is uh, you know has a genius level brilliant brain. And all of that. So I literally made a list of all the possible privileges, gave those to her. And it's a gender flip. Trisha is the Mr. Darcy. And I wanted to see, uh, you know, how uh, how an audience would react to a woman who has all of that, never apologizes for it, but grows in terms of how she sees the world around her in in terms of her lens of empathy. Yes, and I, I do think you uh, provide some level of arrogance, particularly at the beginning of the story with uh, Trisha. But and her her as with most stories, and you do this well. Her her uh, her character progresses throughout the book. But the other main character you have is DJ. Now, DJ is where flavors come in when you have Pride, Prejudice, and other flavors. And I must tell you, you describe him as a talented chef. And when I started reading your vivid descriptions about the quality of his food, I was ready for a DJ meal right away. It was really, uh, uh, it was it was a great description of that. And you you put him out there as one of the best chefs ever. And you give him a very fascinating backstory as well. So tell us a little bit about uh, DJ, the other main character in the book. So again, this was about how when we meet someone who is seemingly and externally different from us, we don't see them. We see a holographic projection of our own ideas and prejudices, right? That's, again, at the heart of um, Pride and Prejudice. And so much of that comes from our own, uh, you know, that can be exacerbated by our own hurt pride and all of that. So it really was that that they both have such different upbringings and such different life experiences and what has been presented to them in terms of opportunity. It's so very different. And I kind of wanted to play with that, obviously, um, you know, that, that piece of uh, Austin's original story. So DJ himself um, is um, this person who is full of um, self-worth, but his self-worth comes from what he is able to give to the world, 
which is uh, which is his food. So he his form of communicating with the world, his lens is nurturing, because at the very heart of anyone who likes to feed other people is taking care of them because this is how we nourish each other, right? With food. And so that is his language. Um, you know, he might be prickly in all other ways, but his uh, he doesn't hold back love when it comes to his food. And that I think is at the heart uh, of DJ's, um, you know, of D- DJ's way of presenting in the world. And having said that, you know, the first time she sees him, all she sees is, uh, you know, a, a man who is cooking in her parents' kitchen and uh, is extremely uh, proud and prickly about his creation. And, um, you know, and she calls him um, a very nasty thing. And uh, he sees her as a very nasty person. And then, of course, the whole journey is for them to reconcile how much of that first impression was their own prejudices and uh, hurt pride. And how much was the other person really, which I think is every single interaction we have with each other in today's very heterogeneous world, um, I think is, you know, is the heart of what I want to say with this novel. Yes, you make it very clear that uh, nobody touches DJ's food without his permission, right? And uh, Trisha found out about that. But what brings Trisha and DJ together after that scene, not always in a friendly way, as you mentioned, um, is Emma. Emma is DJ's sister and Trisha's patient. And you do delve into a number of things there because there are medical ethics involved, big decisions that are made at a personal level. So tell us more about Emma and how that fits into the story. So um, Emma is uh, is an artist uh, where she believes that that we were talking about, you know, why you're in this world and what you bring to it. Uh, which is what our self-worth usually is tied to. If you took away my storytelling, who would I be, right? And so Emma, Emma, for Emma, that thing is her art. And she has, um, you know, spoiler alert, she has a brain tumor um, in a part of her brain, uh, which almost every um, surgeon or every surgeon she has met with has told her is impossible uh, to remove. And given her a limited time to live, and then she meets Trisha, who obviously is, um, you know, an incredibly talented surgeon and uh, obsessed with her work and her patients. And she um, she, she sees um, the the case and she can fix it, but um, but because the tumor is growing on where the optic nerves cross over. Emma is going to lose her eyesight. So it has, um, you know, it ha- it has to do with, again, losing identity because she believes her identity has to do with art and that once she loses her art, she loses herself. And then, um, you know, but, but the only person who can save her life is Trisha. And to DJ, her life is who she is because she is more than her art. And it really is about how we see ourselves, how others see ourselves and what love means and what do we, we get to decide, uh, you know, about what happens to us. And so that then becomes where all the power, because as I said, so much of that story is about a power imbalance and there is a power imbalance between DJ and Trisha. And it's, it's, it again is fed by the fact that Trisha literally holds his sister's life in her hand so to speak. And then the grace with which the two of them navigate that, I think is again, you know, my exploration into how we should be navigating relationships with each other. 
Yes, Trisha's family. I think it's interesting, family dynamics, because DJ's, his sister Emma's all he has left family-wise, and Trisha has this large family, but they're so dysfunctional in so many ways. Uh, I don't know. The the family of, of, of Trisha is another fascinating part of this story, and, and there's plenty of of, uh, of family drama. And despite all of her accomplishments, Trisha, you mentioned this earlier, the family seems totally organized around her brother's candidacy for the governor of California. And she had sort of stayed away from that, and she's trying to get back in, but her other family members aren't sure she's sincere. Very interesting part of that story. Tell us more about that. So as I said, um, you know, my my dream, th- there was a few things here. When we kind of envision a book, it's it's um it's multiple seeds that kind of have been sitting in our head for a very long time, right? So when people say, "What is like the one inspiration of this book or the series?" Um, it isn't one thing for me. It's the stuff that's kind of you know popping in my head for a very long time. And one of those things was that when stories of um, the immigrant experience, especially the South Asian immigrant experience, are told, a lot of what we see is pain and self-loathing because of how we're treated and that growth into really owning your new home, right? So I did want to show the other side. I wanted to show, uh, while those stories are valid, um, you know, they kind of, even if they can sometimes lean into poverty points, so to speak, you know, the the showing only the darkest parts of that part of the world and the experience of being from that part of the world, when that is one one slice of the story. There is also immense amounts of privilege in, um, you know, in South Asian American immigrant communities. And uh, that is something I think that also needs exploration, not just an, oh, look, we're so successful, but that comes with all these Um, you know, mindsets we bring with ourselves, our parents bring with themselves and all of that. So I wanted to kind of show that side of the immigrant experience. The other thing is that um, as an immigrant, there is a whole ladder of, um, of, again, really owning your home and really making it your own. And one of the, you know, again, one of the later stages in that journey is political power. It's when you say, I am going to make decisions for this place that I live in, that's when it really, truly becomes your home, right? So this com- this this family is politically ambitious. So there were all those pieces. Having said that, uh, Indian families uh, often, or rather, for sure, my Indian family, uh, we don't really understand boundaries uh, very well, or our definition of boundaries is entirely different. So here we are in a whole new place where boundaries are defined differently, bringing with us a history of no boundaries between family members. And that brings with it some dysfunction, but also, you know, a lot of fun and uh, and warmth and kind of depth to um, quality of life. And, you know, so all of that is really important to me in my storytelling. And that's what's in here, because you have parents who don't understand what there's actually a line in the book where um, where unconditional love is an oxymoron to our parents. And it was to my parents. And I'm sure my kids sometimes feel that way, even though I try not to be that parent. But, you know, if you love someone um, as a parent, you want them to, you know, give their best so that they can live their best life. And that's a condition. But it is not because it's love. So, you know, what does all that mean? Which is... um. I think a lot of what the, and this is a big fat, you know, 
Indian American family. And so there's a lot of that. And the four stories go through each sibling and cousin's experience within, um, you know, the thematic homage to um, to the original plots of uh, Jane Austen's, you know, four novels that I love. Oh, I, I'm particularly fascinated with the story between Tricia and her father. That is such such an interesting relationship. Maybe it's because I have two adult daughters myself. But um, explain to me why you painted the father in that picture. And clearly, Tricia wants to have a relationship with her father, but her father, at least early in the book, certainly does push back on that. Explain how you came up with that dynamic. So the the history, again, of this family is, uh, you know, that they're these three princes. So they're descended from India has this history of princely states, because when uh, colonization happened, India was a whole bunch of uh, kingdoms. And uh, when the British came, they got put into their, their their power was entirely taken away, but their lands and their titles were, you know, the figurehead lands and titles were left to them. And they essentially became, you know, tax collectors for the British. And so there's this very kind of complicated history that goes again with, you know, their place in social hierarchy and all of that. And so here are these three young princes and Sri, who is Trisha's dad is the middle brother and it's the quintessential older brother is the this is kind of the heir of the you know he has after independence he's running for elections you know trying to be that uh, leader that his ancestors were and so that's his role the youngest brother is the spoiled uh, you know uh, again bad quintessential bad boy prince who's always in the media you know pushing the law, doing all the all the things that, you know, the, the, the spoiled prince stereotype. And this middle brother has, you know, is is um, is smart and has the independence to do what he wants. And he goes to med school. He's also has um, has the nobility, but the freedom to live his own life and migrates to America and wants all these things. But both the other brothers, things don't turn out the you know, he, he loses the older and the younger brother and ends up being the patriarch. So his own trajectory in life has changed and he's had to take on the responsibility of being the head of that family. And, um, and and you know, one of the things that he is obsessed with is his son, um, you know, I always say, is his son becoming uh, the ca- becoming California governor and, um, and having that, um, you know, that, that power to make decisions about the the home they have now made their home and uh, and so he has his own very powerful story so he again is coming from a place of intention where he thinks the big picture is really important and he has forgotten you know the pain uh, the smaller pain of his children so this again i think is a very universal story uh, of how uh, generations see things differently and it is their journey of finding their way to each other and obviously since we are in Trisha's perspective we see the unfairness and the harshness very strongly but I think they both do make that journey and across the four books he himself makes the journey of understanding you know where power and relationships uh, how the balance between those things for the family is important and um and and basically that's there uh, but i will also tell tell a funny anecdote where i always end up writing these really um 
you know, horrid father and my own relationship with my dad is really fantastic. I think he's the best father in the world. We grew up, you know, I grew up in India and he is as, un- which was completely rare to have a father who was so very, uh, you know, non-authoritarian and all those things, right? He is this, um, well, he's perfect and I could go on. But I'll say that my sister-in-law said to me one time, is you have like the best relationship with your father and who are these dads you're writing? And I had to stop and think about it. And I think um, I think it's a really, in terms of device, story device, I think I, I use the fathers as kind of a metaphor for the patriarchy in general. You know, kind of the, you know, all the power. When when power rests so strongly in one, one person, what that does and the, you know, the imbalance it causes and the pain it causes and really what the journey of getting away from that is. Well, if there is an evil character in the book, that would be Julia. Uh, yes. <laughs> you you reveal. It's, I found it interesting the way you write about Julia because as the book begins, you you, you know when the her her name comes up, everybody just kind of recoils. But you're very slow in the book in revealing why, and you kind of bring her into the story. Uh, in, in an interesting way. So talk about how you came up with this evil character, Julia. Oh, gosh, yes. So so Julia's last name, for those who are Pride and Prejudice fans, is Wickham. So it's Julia Wickham. And um, and Wickham is, um, you know, is, is, again, a stand-in for all that is entitled... Uh, and uh, and lazy in society. That's how uh, Jane Austen wrote him, and um, and and I kind of was playing with that a little bit. Where there are so many characters in this book who come up against um, hurdles, and their reaction is to work harder to try and change themselves, to try and change their circumstance. But here we have a character who comes up against hurdles and feels wounded because she feels entitled to something different, right? And those are the two ways in which we can face uh, hurdles and disadvantages. And so I think the, the, the deep, deep anger she has where anything she does is justified if someone has more than her is at the heart of the which is I think why she strikes such uh, such terror in everyone's heart is because you know if you have more than her um she literally feels like a person who if she had to poison you would be okay because uh, how dare you have more than her and I think that's at the heart of it and she really hurts the people in this book um quite quite horribly and um and i think that's kind of where to me that was the soul of her heart that she herself feels hurt by how uh what the world has given her compared to what she sees as you know this uh, embarrassment of riches in the lives of those like trisha and uh yash who's her older brother who's running for california governor uh, one, a reviewer of this book, uh, Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors, some national public radio said the following, and I quote, Pride feels more like a love story about family, redemption, and acceptance than a traditional romance with food as a running motif. And the quote there, agree or disagree? Um, 
I absolutely agree in, you know, and I'm very grateful for the kind words. Um, I I do believe that, um, you know, that I don't really buy into the distinction between love story and romance in that particular way. Um, I think a romance is simply, um, you know, a, a love story that ends with happiness. So it, you know, uh, publishing tends to make the distinction as, um, you know, calling the ones that end in tragedy a love story and calling the ones that end in happiness romance. And I think essentially they're both stories of love and stories of growth where we make ourselves worthy of love by by falling in love with ourselves first. And I think that that's the essential journey for me. And uh, one more question for you before I do that. Once again, a reminder that Sonoli Dev, who we're speaking to right now, will be appearing in Fishers Saturday, September 30th, 2023. It's an afternoon event, 2.30 until 4.30 at Forum Events Center. She'll be there with two other office, uh, two other authors who have written their books, sort of inspired by some other book. And uh, we talked to Natasha Bowen just a few days ago and uh, Skin of the Sea, where Little Mermaid was her inspiration. And there'll be one other uh, author with uh, t- caters more to the, to the small child. Uh, just a reminder about that. And people uh, will be able to get their book signed. You can talk to the authors. It's, it should be a great, great afternoon. My final question to you is, even, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say you the book comes to a very nice ending, but that's not the end of the story, is it? Tell us. It it is not because uh, it is kind of the uh, the new beginning for Trisha and DJ, and we do get to follow them a little bit in the other three novels. But the next one is called Recipe for Persuasion, and um, you know that's set on a cooking show, but is an homage to a second chance. Um, which is uh, Jane Austen's Persuasion. And then we have Incense and Sensibility, where, in which, which is the story of the brother who's running for governor. And, um, you know, that, that's a story of believing something about yourself all your life and something, boom, taking it away. And, um, and then finally, it's the Emma Project, which is the youngest brother. And that's a gender-flipped Emma um, homage again. And that kind of, I think, my focus there is on charity in the modern day, where when you have more than someone else... Um, you know, what that and, and you believe you can change the lives of other people because you have more and what that means in terms of, you know, uh, power and social structure. So which is what I think the original uh, Emma story is about. She believes she knows better because she has more. And so that's the that's that flip. So remind us the title of that latest book you have coming out. So I have a book coming out September 20th. 26th, and I will show it here if you don't mind. It sure. is called Lies and Other Love Languages. And um, and that is a, a, a story of a deep, deep friendship um, of these two girls starting in the 70s. So it starts in Los Angeles in the 70s between these two uh, South Asian American girls. And um, that, fa- that friendship's been broken up for 27 years now. And it's kind of an unraveling for how that happened when uh, one of their daughters finds out in a DNA test that her mother uh, is not her mother. I see. Well, listen, uh, this this is a great conversation. And I will say this, you know, I, I might look at my four grandparents and they all have different ethnic backgrounds. 
Uh, we are all from someplace else in our heritage here in America, and this is an outstanding book about people who are from somewhere else come to America to become successful. And in that sense, I think it's a very American story. And we have a a large Indian American uh, community here in Fisher. So I would believe that they would be very interested in reading this book and your others. So uh, Sonali Dev, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. The very same. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Larry.